All right, we're going to finish up, Lord willing, this wonderful book called Esther in your Old Testament. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles there tonight, Esther chapter 8. How many of you brought your own Bibles tonight? That's awesome. Good for you. If you I would highly recommend and encourage you, if, if you don't already, to start bringing your own Bible to Bible study. There's nothing like having your own Bible. You know, it's like a, if you're going to a sword fighting class, you want to bring your own sword, right? What you're used to. And if you bring your own Bible, you can write notes in it. You can flip around. So I would highly recommend that you start doing that. If you didn't bring a Bible tonight, though, we'd ask you to also read along with us. Uh, There's Bibles provided for you under the seat in front of you. And please turn there to Esther chapter 8, page 573. Lord, you are the good shepherd who leads us beside still waters and brings us to green pastures. And I pray that you would bring us to green pastures tonight. You would feed us from your word. That you would nourish us. That you would strengthen our faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us a worldview that matches your view. A biblical worldview. Bless our time. Bring great encouragement to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after our last study in the book of Esther, you may have thought that the story was over. God had done a great thing. In fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. An incredible turn of events has taken place. Haman was second in command of the Persian Empire, and he was a monster. He was an anti-Semite, and he came up with a plot by which every single Jew in all 127 provinces of the Persian Empire were going to be annihilated, exterminated, man, woman, boy, girl. He made a decree and he got it passed into law. He even set a specific date on the calendar, D-Day, when every Jew would be killed. But God had his people in place. Two Jews living there in Shushan, the citadel. Mordecai, a faithful member of the king's guard, the palace guard. And his younger, beautiful cousin named Esther. And you remember, by divine circumstances and providence, Esther, being a very beautiful woman, eventually became the queen of Persia. A Jewish queen. So God used Mordecai and Esther, and he worked behind the scenes to get rid of Haman. Haman was exposed. His plot was exposed. And you remember, Haman became a hanged man, right? He was killed. Cut off. Mordecai took his spot. Mordecai is now second in charge of all of Persia. And Esther is still... The reigning queen. 
So you would think that the next verse would say, and they all lived everly, how do you say that? Happily ever after. But no, the story's not over. There's a huge issue that still needs to be dealt with. There's a date on the calendar. Before Haman had passed, he had passed a decree that every Jew in the province would be killed on the 13th day of the 12th month, which in Hebrew is Adar. By the way, historians nail that down. March 7th, 473 B.C. A date on the calendar. And here, in chapter 8, D-Day is quickly approaching. It's a little under nine months away. So how are they going to handle this? Well, Esther is going to have to step up again and do something courageous. Look at verse 3. It said, Now Esther spoke again to the king fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite, and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. Now remember, this is the second time Esther has put her life on the line. You don't come before the king of Persia if you're not summoned. She's coming unannounced. Usually people were killed on the spot. But if the king was in a happy mood, he would raise his golden scepter and allow the person that came in to speak. And he raises the golden scepter, and Esther is permitted to speak. So verse 4, so Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and I have found favor in his sight, And the thing seems right to the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Queen Esther, you may speak. What's your request? Revoke the decree. Get rid of the law of the land that says my people are going to be killed eight months from now. Take that off the calendar. Well, verse 7. King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew. Remember, he's second in command. He's there in the court. He says, indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So Esther asked the king, revoke the decree. The king says, I'd love to, but I can't. Haman squeaked that law by me. He got my signet ring. It was sealed. It became a part of Persian law. It was irrevocable. And that was true of the Persian Empire. It's it's weird when we think of in our government, we can make amendments. We can debate and get things changed. In the Persian, nope. Once it was sealed, it was on the books. Haman's D-Day plot was the law of the land. It had to take place. And I'm pretty sure that King Ahasuerus felt remorseful, angry, probably a little bit embarrassed that he had allowed such a thing to be passed. So he says, I can't do that, but here's what I can do. Here's my signet ring. Take it, you, Esther, Mordecai. Come up with your own decree. I'll seal it. 
it'll become irrevocable. You put a decree in place to counteract Haman's decree. And so they did. Says verse 9, So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. Notice this is the third month. D-Day is the 12th month. They got about nine months left. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by courier on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. So they got to work. They put a formal law together in the language of everybody in all 127 provinces. Made it crystal clear. They were going to send it by courier all over. What did the law say? Verse 11. By these letters, read this carefully. The king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both their little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day, in all the provinces of King Hoserus, On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, you see see what they did? 13th of Adar. Jews can be killed. They wrote a decree that said on the 13th day of Adar, all Jews everywhere are allowed to organize and gather in military fashion. All are enabled to defend themselves. Jews on that day are permitted to kill anybody that would come after them on that day in self-defense. So verse 13, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the Sinner. So this law was sealed. It was put on the books. The Persian Royal Federal Express Company sent the letter all over to every province. Everyone has a copy in their own language. So that day, the 13th day of Adar, is a very important day. Gang, on that day, two edicts become operational. The first edict is the edict of death. All anti-Semites in all of the provinces, anyone who wants to harm the Jews, they were allowed by law to attack them, to kill them. But another edict became operational on that same day, and I've called that the edict of life. This is the decree that allows all of the Jews to gather and defend themselves And the edict of life was put in place to counteract the edict of death. Wonderful, brilliant idea, don't you think? And by the way, it's an important concept, Bible students. This very concept right here is important to the story of salvation. Did you know that there's an edict of death 
that is in effect for all human beings right now. It's called the law of sin and death. And guess when it went into effect? When mankind fell in the garden so long ago. You remember that story? God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. Obey me. Don't partake of that tree. If you do, you're going to die. What did Adam and Eve do? They disobeyed. They ate. Guess what? They died spiritually. And they were the first human beings to partake of bodies that could then die. The law of sin and death. Romans 5 says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. As it says in Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Or the way Ezekiel the prophet puts it. The soul who sins shall die. That is the edict of law of sin and death. That is in place today. And it's irrevocable. You sin, you die. All sinners must die. All sinners must be judged. We're all under that edict. It's irrevocable. But we have a God of grace, don't we? And he came up with a new edict. One to counter the other one. According to the Bible, God said, In the courtroom of heaven, if an innocent, sinless substitute were willing to die in the place of sinners who deserve to die, but the innocent one dies in their place, then I'll take that sacrifice and I'll clear the sins of the sinners and I'll give them eternal life. And so God in his grace and mercy sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God who never sinned once. And he came to offer his life and to take the punishment that we deserve. So I mentioned Romans 6, verse 23. Let me show you the rest of it. The wages of sin is death. That's the first edict. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There are two edicts today. Both are irrevocable. It's the law of sin of death. You sin, you die. But God has put in this new edict meant to counter The old edict. And by his love. And in sending his son to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Through faith. You can move to the edict of life. Listen. All people in the human race. Right now. Are under one of those two edicts. You're in the law of sin of death. Or you're in. The one where you've been forgiven of all your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Are you in the new edict? You placed your faith and trust in Christ. What a beautiful concept. What a great thing God has done for us. So, they get a new edict. Back to our story. What's the reaction? Look at verse 15. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Every Jew finds out about this decree and it's a party. And Mordecai becomes a rock star, a holy rock star, a good man, respected. 
all of the Jews are rejoicing that this second decree has been put in place. And one of my favorite details in the whole story, look what it says in verse 17. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon. Don't you love that? Haman, under the influence of Satan, sought to destroy God's people. God not only spares his people, but he expands the number of his people. Now Gentiles are converting to Judaism. Persians are becoming Jews. What an incredible turn of the tables. So, D-Day's eight and a half months away. I'll bet every Jew in every province began training. You think they started training? You think they started doing their sword training and bow and arrow and all of that? They most certainly did. They prepared. And they prepared hard. And nine months pass. And March 7th, 473 B.C. arrives. What happens? Verse 1, chapter 9. Now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. God gave them victory. They were all able to gather, organize, get ready. Jews in every province were attacked, but the Jews overcome. Beautiful. Now this chapter gives some details of how that went down. Look at verse 2. It says, The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Isn't that so? So the Jews are outnumbered, no doubt. The government officials... The Persians, the satraps, many of the Persian military in every province sided with the Jews and gave them help. In a sense, on that day, almost everybody in the kingdom became Jewish. And they all chipped in to help. Do you remember that dark day when Ronald Reagan was almost assassinated by Hinckley. You remember that? What a dark day that was. There's a great story that comes out of that. After President Reagan was shot, when he was being prepared for surgery, he jokingly said to the medical team, I hope all of you are Republicans. One of the doctors replied, Mr. President, today all of us are Republicans. And it was sort of like that on the 13th day of Adar. Everyone became Jewish. God moved in people's hearts. And the lives of the Jews were spared. Now, the fighting was fierce everywhere. But it was particularly fierce in Shushan, the citadel. Where Esther lived, where King Ahasuerus was king, where Mordecai was serving. That had become a hot pocket of anti-Semitism. And you want to know why? Because the house of Haman was there. 
And he had a big family. And they all hated the Jews. And they were not happy with Mordecai or Esther about taking over the house of Haman. So in the capital city, there was fierce fighting. But look what we read in verse 6. And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, Parshandatha, now that's the only name I'm going to attempt to read. 500 men, and then verses 7 through 9, list 10 men by name. And guess who those men were? Verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman. The son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. And on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king. So fierce fighting on the 13th day. The Jews were able to kill 500 that came against them. They were also able to kill 10 of Haman's Sons, incredible uh, story of how they were able to defend themselves. So they were successful, but listen, by the end of that day, the battle wasn't over yet. There were still lots of anti-Jews in that city, and there needed to be more fighting Esther needed more time. So once again, this courageous woman went before the king. A third time. She wasn't summoned, but in she goes. And she survived. She was able to make a request. Verse 12 The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your Your petition? It almost sounds like he's getting a little impatient. You just killed 500. 10 of Haman's sons are dead. What is your petition? But he's gracious. He says, it shall be granted to you. What is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. King, we need one more day. The battle still fight. The king says, yep, you get one more day. They're able to defend themselves a second day. The enemies come. They're able to kill 300 of their would-be murderers. God helped them. Now, Esther asked that the ten sons of Haman would be hanged on the gallows. Now, in Persia, that meant that they would be impaled on stakes 45-foot stakes, 10 of them, impaled and risen up right there in a prominent place where everyone can see. Some have criticized Esther for that. It's like, Esther, you're getting a little vindictive here. It sounds gross. It sounds grotesque. Esther was actually showing mercy. The ten sons of Haman that were impaled were the sons that were killed the day before. So their dead corpses were impaled and rised up. Now, why would she do that? 
It was a sign. It was a plea from Esther. Let the fighting stop. Haman's household is dead. You can't win. God is with us. And I think the message got out loud and clear. And after the second day of fighting, the battle was over. So in Shushan, the Jews were protected. 800 enemies killed. How many were killed in the other 127 provinces? Well, look at verse 16. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and rest from the, and had rest from their enemies. And they killed, how many? 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. So everything said and done, 75,800 men. Enemies of the Jews were killed. Now, I know that sounds like a lot. I know that sounds like a lot. But it's actually a real small percentage of the population. I did the math. 75,000 divided by 127 provinces comes out to roughly about 600 per province. A small portion of the population. And remember, the Jews were not the aggressors. And they were probably outnumbered. Every enemy of the Jew that was killed was killed in self-defense. God gave them victory. An incredible moment in the history of the Jewish people. Now listen. Don't mess with the Jews Don't go after the Jews. The Jews are a protected people. It was Dr. J. Vernon McGee who used to say, the Jew has attended the funeral of every one of the nations that tried to exterminate him. God has miraculously preserved the Jew. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And look what I have bold in there. I will curse him who curses you. That's a promise from God. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. Bless the Jewish people, you'll be blessed. Curse them, you'll be cursed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I am pro-Israel. A hundred percent. And so should everyone who calls himself a Christian. In Zechariah, for thus says the Lord of hosts, he who sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Listen to that. Israel is the apple of God's eye. You touch Israel, you poke God in the eye. God gave them a resounding victory. And after that victory, there was great rejoicing. Verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together... On the 13th day as well as the 14th. And on the 15th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. So follow this. All 127 provinces won their battle on the 13th. On the 14th. They all partied. They all celebrated. They all had a holiday. In Shushan, they fought two days, the 13th and the 14th. They rested and had a party on the 15th day. 
And oh, what a celebration it was. And this was such a significant event in the history of Israel that Mordecai made it an annual feast that all Jews were to keep from that time forth. Verse 20 says, Mordecai wrote these things, sent letters to the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. It sounds like Christmas. And isn't that just like God? To turn what the enemy meant to be a destructive day into a holiday. One of feasting and one of joy. God loves to do that. God loves to take what man means for evil and turn it into something good. So this letter is written. Verse 23, so the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadathai, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, P-U-R, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king and he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So... They called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And so this is the name of the feast that Jews still celebrate to this day, 2,500 years later. Purim, or Purim. Pur is the Hebrew word for lot. In English, if we wanted to make a pur plural, we'd say purs. In Hebrew, it's im, perim. That's why a, a seraph, we don't call it a seraphs, we call them seraphim. Cherub, we don't call them cherubs, we call them cherubim. Hebrew is plural. These days got their name over the lots that Haman, had cast to determine D-Day for the Jews. God was in charge of those lots and those lots eventually determined a day when the Jews were saved and elevated and God took care of them. So Purim. Therefore, verse 26, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. That these days shall be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, Every city that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. And so for 2,500 years, every 12th month, Adar, late February, early March, our time period. The Jews celebrate this awesome feast. The 13th, they celebrate what they call the Feast of Esther. The 14th, they celebrate Purim. The 15th, they call it Shushan Purim. Why? Because in Shushan, they had to fight an extra day. And their celebration of this feast is 
incredible. They do it upright. They gather in the synagogues. Everyone can dress up like a costume in this. Who do all the girls want to be? Esther, of course. Who do all the boys want to be? Mordecai. Nobody wants to be Haman. They dress up. They play the part. They'll read the entire book of Esther from beginning to end. It's performed. It's almost like a melodrama. Every time the name Haman is mentioned, everyone boo, hiss. When Mordecai is mentioned, there's cheers. They celebrate. They feast. They give gifts. They bless the poor. All of that to remember something that happened 2,500 years ago. And for 2,500 years ago, from generation to generation to generation, children, children have been reminded of the great history of God's work in their nation. I think that's beautiful. You know, Passover, another feast, with lots of symbolics to it, Families, Jewish families do it every year together, everything meaning something. Most of all of that is put in place so that parents can teach the kids. So children can understand. That spoke to me this week. You know, Christian, go all out with your kids when it comes to the Christian holidays. Christmas comes around, pull out the nativity set. Put it up. Walk through the nativity story. Tell your kids, show your kids, play with your kids the Christmas story. Good Friday comes around, get the cross out. Easter Sunday comes around, picture of the empty tomb. God's given us these things. Take advantage of them to teach our children. Communion service, done once a month here, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Teach the kids. Baptism, a great picture. All of these things are awesome. God commands it. Well, how does the story end? Look at verse 10. I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 1. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Mordecai reigned a long reign, second in command of all Persia. All the Jews in the land were blessed over him. He spoke peace to all the people. And so now, you could say, and they all lived happily ever after. And I'll say this, all of God's people will live happily ever after, all of us. And you want to know why? God wins. God wins. Haman, Satan, all the enemies that come against God's people. Oh, you listen. They may think they're clever, but God is working behind the scenes. And God's people win because we're with God. The nation of Israel wins. Gang, listen. Now, I know that we're in the church age, and God is dealing with the church, which is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. But God has not given up on Israel. Please understand this. God has a plan for Israel. It's a nation that has been miraculously preserved throughout history. God protected them and redeemed them from Pharaoh and Egypt. They were deported by the Assyrians and deported by the Babylonians, but they made it. Haman 
went after them. God protected them. Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek, went after them. But God protected them. He used a guy by the name of John Maccabeus to purge the temple. Which, by the way, is another feast that we celebrate, Hanukkah. Somebody's saying, what happens when nations attack Israel? And the answer is, well, Israel usually just starts celebrating another feast. Hanukkah, Passover, Purim. The Roman Empire went after the Jewish people. God preserved them. Now, they were banished from their land for almost 2,000 years. For almost 2,000 years, the Jews were scattered. And everywhere they went, they faced difficulties. But on May 14, 1948, within our generation, the nation of Israel was reborn. God preserved them in their war of independence. God supernaturally protected them in the Six-Day War of 1967. God supernaturally protected them in the Yom Kippur War, Day of Atonement, 1973. Israel has constantly been surrounded by people that wish them all dead, annihilated, thrown in the sea. And yet time and time again, God has preserved them. You know, the Bible teaches one day the church is going to exit planet Earth. And God is going to deal with Israel again. And the nations of the world are going to come against Israel under the leadership of the Antichrist. But you know what? God is going to preserve them then. And at that time, they're going to recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. God's people win. Because God is at work. And my friends, the church wins. The church wins. Christian, my brother and sister in Christ, you win. You win. God's hand is upon you. Now, there's still going to be a battle. There's still a fight. But listen carefully. We fight from victory, not for victory. Christ has already run the battle. Now, there's going to be Haman's that we have to face. There's going to be people that will plot and scheme and work behind the scenes to try to take you down. But God is at work, God sees, God moves. Look what he did in the book of Esther. There are going to be tough things that you will face in life as a Christian. You're going to have D-Day moments. You're going to have things that happen and you can't even believe it. But you hold tight because God can turn the worst day into a holiday. The worst moment. And it can hurt big time. But God can use that. In your life to grow you, make you more effective and grow his kingdom. God is growing his kingdom. There's a lot of dark things happening. It's easy to get discouraged. But I want to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ tonight. God is at work. And Christians will win because Christians are born again. And they've partaken of the edict of life. They've received Christ. If you've received Christ, you are his. He loves you. He promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll use everything in your life to work together for your good. So you hang on to him. Be encouraged. God is always at work in your life. Which edict are you under? Which edict? Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Father, we thank you so much that you are in control, that you are triumphant, that you are victorious, that you are growing your kingdom, that you are growing your people. You promise you'll never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for the cross 
Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins and rise again that third day. Thank you for putting that new decree in place. Thank you for making us your children. Now, if you're here tonight and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you haven't allowed what God has accomplished for you on the cross to counteract the sinful condition that you're born in. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But there is salvation. There's a way out. God sent Jesus to die for your sins and rise, and he rose again the third day. The Bible says if you put your faith and trust in him, if you invite him to be your Lord and Savior, all your sins are forgiven, and you will be given eternal life. You become a child of God, now and forever. Have you made that decision? If not, choose salvation right now. You do it in just a simple little prayer. It's a prayer of faith. It's a cry of your heart to God. Just say, Lord Jesus, I cry out to you. Save me. Wash away all my sins. Forgive me. Make me born again. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins in my place. I invite you, Lord, to come into my heart, come into my life, reign there, rule there, take my life. And help me to live for you. Help me to be a good example for you and my family and my circle of friends where I work. Use me, Lord, to expand your kingdom. And Lord, I also want to pray that we would remember often with our children, with our families, the great things that you have done. That the truth would pass from generation to generation to generation in Jesus' name. Amen.